I'm recording. This is me recording my voice. No, don't do that, please. Please don't do that. <laughs> Are we ready? Everybody recording? Tian! Steven! Fur! Win! Would you? If you had a chance to change your fate, would you? Woodchip. Record. Start record. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to your favorite show on the internet encapsulating all things entertainment. It's Entertain This! Sunday, 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 I'm your host, Alex. Now do your guys. Why are you in there? Why are you back there? <laughs> wow, 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 yeah! <laughs> no one asked you to do that. <laughs> no, keep doing your bit. I mean, no one asked you to bring up your weight. <laughs> Glowy the Crusher. <laughs> Incredible. That's that's a fun. <laughs> baby Chloe baby's first price. <laughs> Fisher Price Chloe. It doesn't Hasbro Hasbro Price. This is a this is a fun this is a fun bit though. This can be our opener. If you guys had a wrestling name, what would it be? Like legitimately though. So like if you had to come up with like a your WWE backyard wrestler, what's your wrestler name? Um so like uh, Sawbone or like Burgermeister or like the bandit or like uh sticky underwear like stuff like that Mhm mm The Undertaker Hulk Hogan It's just fun Sting Goodness gracious, it's the great ball of fire. That's that's very good. Okay. <laughs> that's me. That's mine. I want that one. I know I want that one. <laughs> I want to be Mr. As with two Z's. Ladies and gentlemen, weighing in at... I stole your bit. Mr. Az. <laughs> All right, Mike, what's yours? Mike the Spike. Mmm... The Italian scallion. And then you come out with a with a whole onion and you just eat it right there on stage. <laughs> That's a scallop. Isn't this wait, what is what is the stem? What is the stem of an onion chopped up? That's a scallion, right? Chloe, you were fact checker before you were a host. What what's the answer? 
Okay, so I was right. You just come on stage and eat an onion. And you throw it in the crowd. And then you you do it with lobster claws anyway because it's badass. <laughs> you get an onion and a lobster and you smash them together. <laughs> and you get your, you got yourself a stew. I think they'd be cold stone, Steve Austin. They just serve ice cream. <laughs> I'm cold stone, Austin Steve. <laughs> I just work at Cold Stone, and my name is Austin. <laughs> that guy's out there somewhere, and I want him to write into the show, please. Okay, let's let's switch topics a little bit. Similar question, different different format if you were a superhero what would your name be i'll go first because it's obvious spider-man come on <laughs> bullshit who's who's playing who's the host here whose episode is it i'll do what i goddamn please <laughs> yeah If you don't like it, you could take your mask and go home. Honestly, my power would be like Spider-Man's powers, but without the spider parts. So just being like really witty and annoying and being able to take a punch. Like that's about it. So I'd probably be the smart... I'd probably still be Mr. Az. <laughs> yeah, smart Alex. And they're like, is, you'll never guess my secret identity. Um, are, Is your name Alex? Damn it! <laughs> How did you ever guess? Yeah, well, yeah, that's the cool stuff. But if we're talking like what superpower will we actually end up with? I think you have like, I think you have prehensile facial hair. I think that's what you get. Uh, do you depress others? Because then I think you're a super villain. How does your power manifest? You just take really good naps and... Eats a bowl of Captain Crunch in a single sitting. <laughs> it's depression, man. <laughs> but he never uses any of them. Depression, man. Able to stop a train because he refuses to get off the tracks. <laughs> It'll stop. Oh, depression is very serious. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Chloe. Uh, you, you, can f you can find them in your own time, the resources. I don't know. I don't want to link people to the wrong stuff, and Nick's not here to do it anymore. <laughs> um, right. Well, I still do them, but not in the same way. Um, Chloe's superpower. Honestly, Chloe, your superpower is probably, like, the ability to magically shoot stuffed animals out of your arms. Which, like... No. Whoa, yeah! Squishy. Instead of Chloe, you'd be squishy. It'd be like... It'd be like Miss Marvel's ability to, like, get... To, like, biggin, except your biggins would not pack a punch. They instead would be very soft. So, like, you could, like, fill your arm with foam and, like, catch a toddler who's falling off a building. Or if you're, like... Yeah, and then we beat the shit out of them. Yeah, you like that? Yeah, you like that? Squeak! <laughs> Squeak! Uh, your arch nemesis, dogs. 
Well, I think that this topic of conversation perfectly walks us into today's subject that I am going to be talking about. So without further ado, let's get into the show, huh? So, as life becomes ever more complicated, I find myself daydreaming more often. Uh, Not to be a huge downer on what's supposed to be a semi-comedy podcast, but shit is bad. I think that kind of goes without saying. Uh, I'm not going to list all the crazy stuff that the world has been through in the past five years, but I feel I speak for all of us in saying escapism is a necessity at this point. Um, But I digress, you know. Uh, In these moments, as I lose myself in thought, I imagine a world where the solutions to life's problems are simple. The complicated day-to-day is just black and white, good and bad. Uh, We knew the reasons why people did things and knew for certain why they were evil without having to question their motives. More so, I think of a solution for that kind of fantasy world. Uh, I think of how simple it would be to fix the wrongs by simply locking up the wrongdoers and being a hero, maybe even being a superhero. That's what we're going to talk about today. So suit up, mask up, and entertain this. I got some questions to start us off. So let's get into them. In your guys' opinion, what makes a superhero? Sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, especially in publication, most superheroes have like some sort of a cosmic power or mutation of some sort that makes them different or makes them quote unquote super, you know? So uh, what what do you see as qualities of superheroes? Like other than that, like the power, you know? Sure. I think that's what a lot of people would say, that at the core, a superhero is someone who does good. Like, that's their job. They protect and they protect and serve, (laughs) for lack of better words. (laughs) And that's, yes, correct. Chloe, what do you think? Sure. So here's my next question that we can sort of debate is what is the difference between a superhero and just, you know, your average person when it kind of comes down to it? Um, So not the powers, not what quantifies being a superhero, but like when just looking at them, comparing them, what is the difference between what a superhero is and what an everyday person is? Sure. So let's talk instead of differences, what maybe the similarities could be between a superhero and your average person. Yeah, I think that's true. 
the idea of a superhero has kind of been deep rooted within our society for so long that I mean we've started equating everyday people to superheroes you know firefighters are superheroes doctors paramedics are superheroes you know people's moms they're superheroes astronauts superheroes you know it's what a superhero has sort of become in the mainstay is just something to set yourself towards and a goal to set yourself towards like i want to be that because they are my hero you know um which is interesting because it kind of leaves the idea of superheroes in this vagueness that feels like it's been around forever when in fact that's not necessarily the case today i want to explore kind of the history of superheroes and eventually lead it up to what the modern day superhero looks like and how it got there specifically in comic book publication with a little bit of with a little bit of movie here and there so let's talk about the first superhuman ever to be published the first domino that fell leading to our modern day interpretation of a superhero actually happened probably sooner than you think so if you had to throw out a ballpark guess when was the first story of a superhero ever told other than like the greeks other than, like, Greeks having demigods and stuff like that. Yeah. So maybe it's a little bit later than you guys think. Uh, or maybe a little bit earlier. The first... Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people would say that Superman is one of the first superheroes. A lot of people would argue he is the first, but I'm here to tell you those people are wrong. The first superhero ever to reach publication happened in 1902. So we're talking early 20th century. Early, early 20th century. Almost late 19th century. Uh, it was um, 1902 with Wilhelm... Henrik Detlev Corners, it's German, come on guys, stick with me, uh, publication of a one-panel comic called Hugo Hercules in the Chicago Tribune. A little bit about, yeah, a little bit about our, our hero, Hugo Hercules. He was a good-natured man endowed with superhuman strength. Hugo wandered about town, helping people with their problems and shocking him with his surprising display of power. He was so strong that he could pick up an elephant, kick a house like a football, wield an artillery cannon like a handgun, and lift a locomotive engine off the tracks and pull its cargo all by himself at train speeds. He, he was... Uh, he was uh, an everyman, so he was casual about his incredible feats. Uh, Hugo often repeated his catchphrase, just as easy. He would do something and be like, it's that easy. There it is. He would then, uh, he would then be sort of shrugging off what he had just done to the uh, adoring crowds and just like, it's that easy. Don't, don't think of me as a hero. I just did it. You could do it too. Which is neat. Um, so, it's almost political comic. Yeah, man. Uh, sometimes referred to as the first superhero, the strip, the strip was not a great success, running only one year. Uh, after that, Corner eventually left comics to become a painter. Well, yeah, you would think that, but then you think to all of, you think to all of the like superheroes that are in publication, and you're like, it's kind of the same thing. The only thing about this was, I feel like Hugo set the bar. He set a low bar, but he at least set the bar. Like this is a story that could be told. I'm not, I don't want to explore it anymore, but somebody else could, and I think that's what was the you know spark that lit the fire that later became comic book publication. So we kind of see Hugo as being the first quote-unquote superhero because he walked around and he helped people. But first off, he went by his name, Hugo Hercules. 
Um, and what he was doing wasn't necessarily, uh, we'll say doomsday level saving. He was, you know, doing your casual everyday good Samaritan saving. He just also had super strength, right? So the question then lies is, do we quantify that as being a quote-unquote superhero? And if not, what would quantify a superhero? Uh, and so I kind of laid out my own ideas of what uh, could, if if that's not the definition of a superhero, what could be? And I think one of the big things is a secret identity uh, and a, a hidden double life, right? So that brings us to our next step in the chain of what uh, a superhero was, starting with Zorro, actually, being the first masked vigilante. For those of you who, for those of you who don't know, Zorro is Spanish for fox. Chloe just made a very happy face. So Zorro is a fictional character created in 1919 uh, by American pulp writer Johnson McCulley, appearing in works set in the Pueblo of Los Angeles in Alta, California. He is typically portrayed as a dashing masked vigilante who defends the commoners and indigenous people of California against corrupt and tyrannical officials and other villains. His signature all-black costume includes a cape, a hat known as a sombrero cordobes. I don't speak Spanish either. And a mask and a mask covering up half of his face. So we know Zorro as uh what's the actor's name? The guy from Spy Kids. <laughs> Antonio Banderas is Zorro for us. But would you believe that wasn't yeah, it's Antonio Banderas. Uh, but would you believe that Antonio Banderas was not the first to execute the character of Zorro on the silver screen? Because Zorro was also the first time a superhero made an appearance on the silver screen in a movie called The Mark of Zorro, only one year after original publication in 1920. The first ever superhero movie. I don't know the actor's name off the top of my head. It's called The Mark, The Mark of Zorro. Maybe a reference. Be interesting. Something for you guys to look up on your free time. I'm going to keep going. Uh, some people would argue that, uh, Zorro does not quantify as a superhero because he actually does not, uh, have any superpower. He is just a skilled swordsman and a masked vigilante. So for some people, they don't even consider him to be the first superhero. Um, now if we're talking legitimate first superhero, like I said, I am adding filter after filter until we get to a solid definition. Uh, we have a secret identity and a superpower. Hell, just for kicks and giggles, I'll throw in a colorful costume. If that's what we're talking, then the first ever superhero was a hero called the Phantom. The Phantom. Uh, not of the opera specifically, and also not of DC or the menace and not specifically of dc or marvel publication either the first superhero did not come from either of them um but it was created by lee falk uh the phantom who debuted in his own comic or his own newspaper comic strip on the 17th of february of 1936 uh is basically what some people consider to be the very first superhero um in this first comic strip it recounted the adventures of Kit Walker, who donned a mask and purple outfit to become the Phantom, a.k.a. the Ghost Who Walks. The character's whited-out eyes with no visible pupils became a feature of many later superheroes, including Batman, Green Lantern, and Green Arrow. The series began with a newspaper strip, followed by a colored Sunday strip on May 20th of 1939. Both are still running as of 2022. 
So he's still out there. Um, in 1966, King Features stated that The Phantom was being published in 583 newspapers worldwide, and at its peak, the strip was read over 100 million people daily. So there was a following. Uh, his power was that he basically could not die. He was unkillable. Yeah, but his, his superpower is he is unable to die. Um, so this series began on February 17th, 1936. Uh, and for you comic book fans out there who are like, Superman was the first superhero. Fine, fine. But Superman wasn't published until two years later. So the Phantom did technically beat him by two years, but... You know what? Let's just talk about Superman. We all want to talk about... Everybody keeps... Everybody wants to talk about Superman. Let's just talk about Superman. Um, we're going to... We're going to talk about Superman, but I want to first state that The Phantom definitely inspired the work of DC Comics, who two years later would release their first superhero, Superman. And what I will say is Superman was definitely the comic that kicked off what was known as the Golden Age of Comics. Are you guys familiar with uh, sort of the different eras or ages of comic books? Well, by the end of this episode, you will, because we're going to talk about it, starting with the Golden Age of Comics. So the Golden Age of Comic Books is recognized as being kicked off by the publication of Action Comics number 1, which was the introduction of Superman and the archetype of a superhero in general. This was the idea of somebody with a ton of superpowers who basically could save the world from an apocalypse-level event. That was not something that we had seen yet. Um, we also, in this era, would see the introduction of Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, and Captain America, and many more iconic superheroes, as well as the predecessors to many of our prized comic book companies such as Detective Comics, DC, Timely Comics, which would then become Marvel Comics. Um, and many of these superheroes can be seen fighting America's real-life enemies, such as Hitler, providing a national uh, kind of conglomerate to face off against Hitler at home, if maybe you couldn't be a part of the armed troops to make it feel like you were kind of a part of it. Um, this was also provided to the troops for a much-needed morale boost, along with cheap entertainment. Something that is kind of explored in the uh, Marvel movie, Captain America, uh, the first Avenger, where he literally is exactly that. He is used as a sort of propaganda machine and at one point. And that's where, that's where we were with the golden age of comics was this sort of, it was for kids and it was propaganda. That's what needs to be understood. Captain America cr was created to say, America's great. We're supposed to be in this war. We have to save these people. And yes, especially in World War II, that was the case. But it was still propaganda. God love them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, So... With the golden age of comics, um, in the late 1940s, additional genres started to appear, such as westerns, sci-fis, and detective stories. Uh, I have an old collection of comic books, and it is chock full of all of these. Um, but there were some murmurs in the crowd and a belief growing amongst some more conservative of the population. They were asking a very simple question, and one that the answer was sort of hard to give, which is, what are these comic books doing in the minds of our children? Something that every form of entertainment has faced at one point or another. So, so what did what did that question lead to? So, so the question the question is what did uh, what did that question lead to? The what are these comic books doing to the minds of our children? That kind of leads us headfirst into the next age of comic books which is the silver age of comics which lasted from 1956 to 1970 
Um, the Silver Age of comics is when comic books really hit their stride and became mainstream sources of entertainment in America. Comic books covering superheroes lost popularity towards the end of the Golden Age uh, and the beginning of the Silver Age, but quickly rose back to popularity once the content of the comic books began to be more closely regulated in fear of spurring more juvenile delinquents from questionable content found in horror and mystery genres. This is famously known as um, the era where we basically got diet comic books. Uh, they took out the poverty, the murder, the real dangers to give way to an era where the Joker was just a funny little guy pulling pranks. Well, and this was a very famous era for especially Batman because this is where Batman picks up his I don't kill people uh, mentality. Where actually a lot of superheroes pick up their I don't kill people mentality because if our superheroes killed people, then it seemed like it was okay. Yeah, that's that's kind of the funny thing about how um, it all started. Because in the Golden Age, that is what it was. That's where we started. Was like, superheroes would kill people. Like, I mean, the Phantom carried around a gun. You saw that. Like, that's how it worked. But, yeah, because... With a gun! Captain America had a gun in his first couple issues. Um, yeah, so it was that kind of publication that led into the silver age of comic books where yeah and i mean what we lost in the silver age of comics was um the ability to see these superheroes as human uh or as relatable figures because they were no longer facing things the way we would i mean superman could take a bullet to the chest and be unscathed you know we can't say oh hey there's a piece of us in superman you know because superman's not even from this planet um so you know that's that's kind of where we're at with the silver age of comics uh this was basically to attract a child demographic and their more strict parents who didn't approve of the themes of the golden age of comics but Luckily, uh, this also sort of left a large pocket of about um, roughly 12 years, um, more like uh, roughly 18 years, really, where a young Stan Lee was growing up reading comic books. And so throughout Stan Lee's age of comic books, it was all superheroes who were these, you know, towering titans who you could never stand up to, lived on a pedestal, and basically were gods, modern-day gods that we couldn't relate to. So we can kind of thank the Silver Age of Comics because what was happening near the end of the Silver Age of Comics was Stan Lee uh, took on a writing role in, uh, I think it was originally, I think maybe Titan um, or Timely Comics, that's what it was, timely comics um and was challenged by the editor there to basically come up with something that could rival superman because at the time superman was the end-all be-all for superheroes he was like here's what you gotta do i need you to come up with something because basically if you don't we're we're gonna fire you like we're gonna shut down we're gonna fire you um so that's where the story kind of takes a little bit of a turn into Stan Lee, which I know I am one to talk about almost endlessly. So I have scripted this out, and hopefully we can keep it in the rails. Um, but it was near the end of the Silver Age of Comics uh, where Stan Lee's genius truly shines, because you see Stan Lee question the style in which comics were written. It was actually the Silver Age being the only way he ever had known comics. Uh, up until this point, superheroes had been framed as these morally pure beings with no want or need for personal gain. Their stories had been black and white as the world I fantasized about. It wasn't until Stan Lee asked, why aren't they like us? 
that these heroes finally took on an engaging and human trait worth uh, a lot of the uh, sort of hype that led them to the silver screen today. Uh, Lee wanted to introduce the idea that when the mask came off, these quote-unquote heroes were people too. He once recounted that when he shared this idea with his wife, he was on the edge of being fired, and he was told to come up with something original uh, with the to compete with the growing popularity of Superman. And he wasn't sure if making a more human superhero would fit the bill. His wife basically told him to give it a shot and swing for the fences because the worst they could do was fire him. So it was on that that he took the jump. Lee decided to write about heroes in their most vulnerable state, which is sort of very important. And I think you guys will see where I'm going with this because he recognized that if I wanted to tell a story about people who just so happen to be superheroes, the best way to tell that story is to tell about a family of superheroes. A mom, a dad, maybe a brother, an uncle, two kids. And that's where we get the Fantastic Four. More so, he wanted to talk about um, the day-to-day and what it was like as they struggled living together alongside saving the world. Uh, They were considered the first family of superheroes, and of course, it was a huge success. Right. No, this that is origin that that developed with the Fantastic Four. They were the first to ever do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Stan Lee was... The message was, this could have happened to anybody, but it happened to them. You know? And that also led us to uh, the sort of last hero to grace the Silver Age of Comics in 1962, uh a uh, young teenage boy with no money just trying to make his way in the world while also being a superhero, Mr. Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Actually, Spider-Man went to high school with Johnny Storm, also known as the Human Torch. They were they were classmates and often Spider-Man would go over to the Baxter building and as as Spider-Man and be a part of the Fantastic Four because they were the only two superheroes at the time from Marvel Comics. So they would blend and mesh. So true. Um, but I mean, we, we did an episode on Spider-Man, so I won't get too into Spider-Man as a whole, but Spider-Man, if... I would say the Fantastic Four walked so Spider-Man could run because the Fantastic Four was the test and Spider-Man was the execution on this idea of um, this could have happened to anybody, but it happened to him. This could literally be anybody. It doesn't have to be this like specific person. Anyone can wear the mask. Uh, that's a huge thing that we talk about in the Spider-Man episode. Um, but this idea that he is just like us and any of us could have done this, you know? That's what Stan Lee wanted to sell with these comics, and he was, you know, successful with it. It's one of the reasons why comic books still have a life today. And it was these uh, real characters and real situations that would actually walk us into our next era of comic books, the Bronze Age of comic books. So the Bronze Age was from 1970 to 1985. 
and we saw a continuation of the popular characters, but with a return to darker plots regarding real-life issues seen in the early Golden Ages, such as drug use, poverty, and pollution. Um, unlike the previous ages, there was no clear event that kicked off the Bronze Age, but rather an undeniable trend in the industry overall kicked off by Stanley. Um, it also marks the end of many great writers' careers and ushered a new, younger writer uh, that put their own spin on storylines, basically. Out with the old, in with the new. Um, so let's go over a couple of events that kind of lifted us into the Bronze Age. Uh, instead of a number of events... It just kind of began in the 1970s, uh, and it just kept kind of spiraling until we found ourselves in a new era of comics. But one such event... That's basic... That's basically it. So, um, one such event was April of 1970 issue of Green Lantern, which added Green Arrow as a title character. The series, um, written by Denny O'Neill and penciled by Neil Adams focused on relevance as Green Lantern was exposed to poverty and experienced self-doubt. So we're seeing him basically take a book out of Stanley's uh Stanley's or take a page out of Stanley's book rather. Uh later in 1970, Jack Kirby left Marvel Comics, ending arguably the most important creative partnership of the Silver Age with Stanley. Uh Kirby then turned to DC where he created the Fourth World series of titles starting with Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen in December of 1970. Also in 1970, Mort Weisner, a long-term editor of various Superman titles, retired to be replaced by Julius Schwartz. Schwartz set about toning down the more fanciful aspects of Weisner's era, uh, removing most kryptonite from continuity and scaling back Superman's nigh-infinite by then powers, which was done by veteran artist Kurt Swan together with groundbreaking author Denny O'Neill. So this is where we see Superman get nerfed. <laughs> because like Chloe was saying, like Chloe was saying, he wasn't relatable. So we had to let him die. We had to, you know, take away some of his powers. We had to make Superman one thing. You know that uh part from uh I think you should leave where it's like find out what you do. You had all summer to think about it. Find out what you do. Like that's what they did to Superman at this point. Um, right. Right. Uh, yeah, so Kryptonite has always kind of been a thing. This is where they were like the death of Superman. You know, like, Superman dies in this one, you know? Um, but another kind of important thing that happened was this is when we started to see the death of other kinds of comic books. So, like, how there used to be old westerns and, like, war and, like, soldier comic books. We started seeing a death of those as superhero comics sort of started way overlapping them uh, in sales. That's fair. So over so over time, the uh, medium shifted to cheap mass market products sold at newsstands uh, to more expensive products sold at uh, specialty comic book shops and aimed at smaller core audience of fans. So this is when we start seeing the birth of those uh, locations where basically you go and it's just full of comics and that's it. Uh, the shift in distribution allowed for many small print publishers to enter the market, changing the medium from one dominated by a few large publishers to a more diverse and eclectic range of books. Uh, so we see a little bit more uh, artistry go into the publication of these comics, which we can now thank uh, for a lot of cool titles that we have today, like the Critical Role series of comics that were able to be published. Uh, Dark Horse is another really important one. Um, Another thing that happened in the Bronze Age of comics as we shift more towards the dark was a very famous Spider-Man story, uh, one that basically completely changed the tone of Spider-Man and set him in the world where we know him as now, and it was the murder of Spider-Man's longtime girlfriend, Gwen Stacy. Up until this point, Spider-Man 
had not been with Mary Jane. And in fact, Mary Jane wasn't introduced until this era of comics. Um, instead, his love interest was someone by the name of Gwen Stacy. Of course, blonde hair. We all kind of have an image in our head of what she looks like from uh, especially the Andrew Garfield movies. But it, when uh, Mary Jane entered, there was a poll taken uh, from comic book readers as to which one should end up with Spider-Man. And Mary Jane won. And because of that, Mary, Mary or Gwen Stacy basically got the boot at the hands of Green Goblin, of all things. Um, so this happened in 1973, uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 121 and 122, and it is considered by comic scholar Aaron T. Bloomberg to be the definitive Bronze Age event, as it uh, exemplifies the period's trend towards darker territories and willingness to subvert conventions such as the assumed survival of long-established, quote-unquote, untouchable characters. Um, however, there have been a, uh, there had been a gradual darkening of the tone of superhero comics for several years prior to the night Gwen Stacy died, including the death of her father in 1970, um, in Amazing Spider-Man number 90, and the beginning of the Dennis O'Neill, Neil Adams tenure on Batman, where things were starting to get very dark. So, that's kind of a, a kind of uh too long didn't read of the bronze age of comic books this was also where we started seeing stuff like uh iron man who confronts his alcoholism and the uh socially conscious stories written by steven gerber and such titles as howard the duck yep howard the duck in case you were wondering or have never read his comics is not a comedy in fact howard the duck is usually in some of the worst situations in the world and the entertainment comes from the fact that he is an amplipomorphic duck who is facing drug addiction, who is facing like being in love with uh, someone who is a part of the sex working industry uh, and things like that. Like Howard the Duck has it hard. Uh, there's a cool little side tangent I could go on about Howard the Duck and how his original public or his original author and the guy who created the character stole him back from uh, DC when they basically took him by creating a comic book where uh, Howard the Duck got cloned so many times that you could no longer tell which one was the real Howard the Duck. And then in a separate publication, he had a hero come in and grab the real Howard the Duck and run off with him. Uh, he basically stole Howard the Duck back from the publishers and left them with a clone of Howard the Duck, which is hilarious. You should look that up. It's it's a very interesting thing that happened in comic book history. Um, But it was also... It was also in the Bronze Age of comics that we saw uh, issues regarding female empowerment become uh, trends with female versions of popular male characters, such as Spider-Woman, who is, of course, the female version of Spider-Man, Red Sonja, who is, uh, I believe, the female version of Daredevil, but I may be wrong there. Oh, no, I actually think that she is the female version of a different character. I wonder who I'm thinking of. Uh, Red Sonja. Um, Miss Marvel, who at the time, Captain Marvel was actually a male. So Miss Marvel was who we now consider to be Captain Marvel. That's a very confusing thing that happened as well. Because originally Captain Marvel's name was Shazam. And then Shazam became a DC character. And then Captain Marvel became what Shazam was. And then we made a female version called Miss Marvel, who later then became Captain Marvel. And that's how we ended up with the Captain Marvel we have today. Uh, and also She-Hulk, of course. So, yeah. Yeah, in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this all kind of sets the precedent for the modern age, which started in 1985. But this is also known as the dark age of comic books. Basically, uh, we took things that were getting bad in the Bronze Age and we made them worse. This is where things get really bad. This is where we have stuff like Batman, The Dark Knight Returns, uh, Watchmen, um, stuff like that. Some graphic novels that get pretty bad. Uh, we see stuff like Venom. 
death killing almost every issue. Like Venom eating people. It gets dork, dork. Um, superheroes, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is also where we saw things like the Joker being portrayed as less of an evil criminal and more of a mentally ill psychopath that can't control his actions. Um, or, you know, characters like Galactus, who is a force of nature who has no personal malice against his feedings. He just has to eat worlds. He's hungry. That's why he does it, you know? Um, but all of this leads the way to what I really want to be talking about, and I'm going to talk about with the last 10 minutes that I have of this episode. Maybe I'll go a little over. I don't know. It depends on where we, we are, which is a comic book series that kind of came out of left field, didn't come from Marvel, didn't come from DC. Uh, it was through all of this information that I have given you uh, that our walk concludes at the Grand View I really want to talk about. The combination of comic book history and the works of Stan Lee and so many others, the changing tides and vibes of the industry uh, that has gone through all the culminations in a title I deem as being the epitome of, moder of the modern era and was actually written by the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, Gerard Way. Yeah, look at that face, Mike. <laughs> the author the author of this amazing series of comic books is the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, Gerard Way. It is known as The Umbrella Academy. Yeah. It is an Eisner-winning comic book series written by Gerard Way and illustrated by Gabriel Ba. Uh, the series uh, that it basically um, bleeds references to comic book history and heavy ties to the influences from Stan Lee's work in the 1960s, as well as some of the work done on Superman and stuff like that. Um, but let's just kind of get into it because I don't have much time left. Let's talk about the titular team of the Umbrella Academy, which is described as a dysfunctional family of superheroes. There we are again, a family of superheroes, because that is the most clean and honest way to frame it. Um, in the mid-20th century, in the instance of the finishing blow of a cosmic wrestling match, 43 superpowered infants are inexplicably uh, born to random, unconnected women who showed no sign of pregnancy at the start of the day. So, miraculous conception. Um... Ah, that too. Both. Both even. Yeah. So, Sir Reginald uh, Hargreaves, a.k.a. the Monocle, adopts seven of these children and prepares them to save the world from an unexpected or an unspecific, an unspecified threat as the Umbrella Academy. And in the comic book series Apocalypse Suite, the team disbands and falls out of contact until they meet on the news of Hargreaves' death. And uh, they have to re reunite when one of their own numbers becomes a supervillain. So uh, the sort of personal attachment to this is this is about a family of people who grew up together and love each other who separate and go and live their own lives and are brought back together uh, when one of them goes rogue. And to throw on top of that, which is already a pretty gripping story, they all have superpowers, which is nuts. So these uh, comics were later turned into a Netflix series that is an absolute must-watch, dealing with topics such as family trauma, self-acceptance, racism, segregation, death, and even problems with gender identity, all of which are handled in gentle, respectful, and real ways. Um, not to spoil too much, but just one example that I am just so happy to talk about because of how it was handled. Um, one of the uh, many actors and actresses who make up the television series The Umbrella Academy um, recently transitioned from female to male, 
and is now going by uh, Elliot Page, he, him pronouns. And this happened uh, between the second and third season of The Umbrella Academy, the TV show. So one of their main cast members transitioned gendered genders and it uh you have to ask yourself like how does that affect the character they wrote it into the script the character also transitions to uh to male and it's done in a way that is kind and uh accepting and heartfelt the entire family basically there's an episode where i mean it leads up naturally it's not forced in uh the uh, character basically just says, this is who I am. This is who I've always been. Uh, and now I just want to display this way. And one by one, each character just goes, okay. And then starts calling them, I, I believe, Trevor. Uh, is that right? Victor. Victor. That's right. Start calling Von- yeah, Vanya. I'm Victor now. And everybody's like, Victor. And immediately, they start using he, him pronouns. And the plot, they get mad at each other. They get aggravated with each other. At one point, they start fighting, like infighting between them, like real passionate, emotional fights between them. And never do they slip up. Always, they use he, him pronouns. They refer to him as Victor the entire time. It is beautiful to watch. Uh, an incredible way to handle that situation. And that alone has not happened. Absolutely not. The first time it's happened. Um, yeah. And yeah. It's literally that easy. Um, and, you know, huge props to Gerard Way, who created this world where that happened. And I was like, that ha that fits. It didn't feel out of place. It didn't feel weird. Because already it had the, the identity of these characters and who they were and how they treated each other was already laid in concrete so well that it already felt like an accepting, loving environment. Um, and they they infight. They're real people. It's that's what makes them gripping characters. So all of this basically to say, I suggest you guys go read and or watch the Umbrella Academy. It's well worth your time. Uh, in fact, I was going to do this entire episode on the Umbrella Academy, and then I got looped into the history of comic books. But all of this to say, if you want something that is honest to comic books and how they've worked throughout the years, if you want an culmination with excellent uh, references to the past. The first family of superheroes, an alien coming from outer space and wreaking havoc on humanity, um, end of the world scenarios, apocalypses that have to be dealt with by these average people. This is the show for you and you should go watch it. So all in all, what I want to say is comic books are great. They've always been a part of our culture. There's a good reason to it. Most of it, we can thank Stan Lee for being the first to say, hey, what if these people were like us? And then thank you to Gerard Way, who took that a step further and said, these people are like us. And because of that, we need to be more like them. With that, entertain this. That's the outro. It's a call to action this time. You need to watch. You got to watch more. Dang it. Watch more. You deserve it. Um, you deserve it. Uh, go watch more. Trust me, you deserve it. All that being said, after this musical interlude, Michael's got a quick this. We'll see you after. And we're back. No, don't do that. When we're back. Hi. It's you. I have the timer for you. Three, two, one, go.
Is this spoilers? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, good job, Mike. Well, folks, we've we've come to another beautiful end of this here podcast. Let me get in real close and talk with you, real serious. Like, guys, we're in trouble. Not really, but we could use some more viewers. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, it'd be real nice if you listen to the podcast, if you like the podcast, if you told two friends, and they told two friends, and they told two friends, and they told two friends. That's like. Already, like, uh, maybe 20 people. I don't know. Bad at math. Somebody else could do that. Doesn't matter. It'd be 20 more people than listen now. That's our call to action to you. Get two friends to listen to our podcast. Uh, that would be really great. Here's another call to action for you. If there's anything in the realm of entertainment that we haven't uh, done yet here on this show, hit us up. You can do that in a couple of different ways. The easiest way is to go to our website, www.entertainthis.com slash et-podcast. Scroll all the way to the bottom and fill out the little questionnaire there. Get sent straight to us. Or you can just email us. We're entertainthispodcast at gmail.com. Email us those suggestions. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. We are entertain underscore this. On Instagram, we are entertain this podcast. And on Facebook, we are uh, podcast entertain this. And until next time, entertain us. So we can entertain you, and uh, you can entertain this. See you next Friday. Bye!